And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on March 4th, 2021. Don Blohalt is on a mission to reconnect urban kids worldwide with nature. He is Chief Tree Planting Officer at IVN Environmental Education, and he leads the tiny forest movement in the Netherlands. He is also a consultant and teacher for Earthwatch in the UK, Good Planet in Belgium, and ecosystem restoration camps. He currently lives in the leafy town of Dendolder with his wife Kiki and two sons, Mays and Tang. He has a bachelor's degree in hospitality management and a master's degree in business administration and organizational change. Since joining IVN 10 years ago, he has learned a great deal about restoring nature and restoring people's connection to the living world. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Dan. We're delighted that you can join us today. Uh, thank you, Eva. Uh, I'm good. Excited to be here and uh, to, to, to share my story about our uh, tiny forest quest. I, I think that it, uh, when I saw this on LinkedIn, I, I was very excited about it because the photos that you have on there were really great. They, they were showing the wonderful forest that you were building. So this is all about tiny forests today. Um, we're very excited about that. So tell tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this project. Yeah, sure. Yeah, maybe a little bit of context. Um, uh, for the past ten years, I've been working for the uh, for the Institute for Environmental Education, um, and I work in uh, well. The Netherlands is one of the most densely populated countries in the world. So two out of three kids grow up in a city. Uh, in an urban environment. Um, when I was working on green schoolyards, on uh, all, all kinds of nature educational programs, I met a lot of kids who had never been to a forest, uh, who lived about a mile from the beach and had never been there. And, and that, well, that started to really scare me because we have all these big environmental issues like the plastic soup, climate change, uh, loss of biodiversity. And now we have this entire generation of kids who grow up indoors uh, without ever going to nature, without even realizing there are forests in the Netherlands, there's beaches, there's all kinds of nature reserves. Um, and then I discovered this research that said, well, kids can only are now only allowed to go 300 meters from their house. That's basically the territory they, they have to move around. Uh, and the research actually shows that that the 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 territory in which kids can roam freely it it is cut in half every generation so it's it's getting less and less 
And that's when I thought, well, we're going to need a concept that's, that, that promotes nature close by, but it needs to be something exciting and new and wild. Um, and I basically, had, uh, I didn't know what it should look like. Uh, and that, that's when I ran into the, the TED talk of an Indian industrial engineer, uh, Shubendu Sharma, and he had a TED talk uh, in which he talked about a tiny forest. And I instantly fell in love with the name alone, Tiny Forest, uh, because I always saw a forest as a big, um, well, a big, vast uh, woodland. Uh, but he actually created the forest about, uh, I think it was 100 square meters in his own backyard. And he showed pictures of how the forest grew and he started harvesting fruits and there were all kinds of birds visiting it and the groundwater didn't dry up again. So it had all these benefits in just a small space. And I thought, well, that's what we need in a densely populated Holland, uh, a tiny forest because you have uh, 100, 200 square meters. That's about the size of a tennis courts. Every neighborhood in the Netherlands, whether it's urban or, or rural, uh, has, has that kind of space. So uh, I thought, well, this is what we need to, to connect those kids who I meet who never go to nature because we can plant it in schoolyards or we can plant it in parks or even in backyards. Uh, so, so that's how I ran into the concept in 2014 by watching the TED Talk. And then I reached out to Shubendu um, to ask him, well, can you help us? Because I want to create one in the Netherlands, uh, but I don't know where to start. You know, I'm a, I'm a master in business administration. I, I don't know that much about soil or trees or, or tree planting. So and he started helping us out. So I think a year later, we planted our first tiny forest in the municipality of Zaanstad, uh, which is a city uh, just north of Amsterdam. Uh, and we planted there with uh, with 60 kids, uh, and, and for I think 80% of the kids, it was the first time they they planted a tree. Uh, we planted two small woodlands, uh, which I started using for for classes um, and for outdoor lessons. And from that moment on, um, it, uh, the the movement has started to started to grow. But uh, the the TED talk was the thing that led led to uh, to us planting a lot of these tiny forests. That's a wonderful concept, and it's wonderful that you're taking the charge uh, in the Netherlands to create these tiny forests to connect the children to the woodland or to nature. And that I did had no idea that the Netherlands was the most densely populated country in the world. Well, the third, third, third. I think third. Uh, Korea and Taiwan are more densely populated, but then it's the Netherlands, yes. And and it's and the fact that the children never get to see a forest, they may hear about it or read about it or see pictures of it, but never, never walk in one is kind of scary. <laughs> oh, it was shocking to me because I, I grew up in a small village and I was surrounded by 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 trees and woodlands. So uh, I grew up in nature and I, I I was always playing there. So and I had a, I had a wonderful childhood. So yeah, I just wanted those kids to have the same kinds of experiences as I did as a kid. Uh, I think well the the tiny forest. I, I hopefully uh, they connect with the woodland and and grow more curious and and try to find a go to the bigger forest and the other nature reserves that the Netherlands still has. Tell me a little bit about your organization. How many of these woodlands, these new woodlands, do you create? Well, we're a volunteer-based organization, so we have about 25,000 volunteers in the Netherlands uh, and about 150 people working at our, um, at our NGO. 
for the past five years, we've planted now, I think we've planted 120 tiny forests in, the, in public spaces. Um, so we have partnerships with about 50 different municipalities who say, well, we're going to plant three or four tiny forests. Um, so that's what we've been doing for the past few years. Uh, and the first step, what we do is we find a municipality that wants to partner up with us. Um, after that, we try to find people living in the neighborhood to say, well, we want to have a tiny forest in our neighborhood and we want to participate in it and, and take charge there. And we always find a school to adopt the forest. So it all, every tiny forest has an outdoor classroom, uh, which is a seating area that the teachers can use as an instruction. And we have a curriculum from ages four through 12, so they can do all types of assignments uh, in the forests. Um, yeah, so, so half of the work is creating the forest and the other half of the work is, is engaging the local community and engaging the local school to really help plant the forest and after that maintain and use it as a place for recreation, a place for education. How do the teachers interact with this? Do they, do they like this as an outdoor classroom? Because sometimes there's a little bit of resistance there. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's from resistance. <laughs> from from uh, school. I know I used to work with, uh, with elementary schools with one of the organizations that we founded. And we found uh, sometimes there was a lot of pushback with the teachers. They didn't want to be outside. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. Um, they didn't want the kids to be outside. Uh, that was that was the pushback. Yeah, well, we, we, of course we have the pushback. So it's it, in our vision they use the tiny forest every week to to teach outdoors just for one hour. Um, but in practice, it will be less, you know, because um, teachers in the Netherlands, I don't know what it's like worldwide, are under a lot of pressure. Um, there's a lot of sick leave just uh, because of burnout. So so that's a, that's a very common cause for for uh, right now for teachers. So there's a lot of stress in, in, um, in schools in the Netherlands at, at this time. However, at every school, I think we've found one or two teachers who are really excited about it. Um, they use it. And then you've got some, uh, some of their colleagues who well, are, well, they're not that enthusiastic. And you've got one or two that don't want to do it. <laughs> so that's basically the makeup of every team of teachers uh, in a school. Uh, so what we try to do is, well, first of all, we... Uh, we give some lessons ourselves. So we uh, we have people um, who used to be elementary school teachers. They now go to the schools. They teach uh, teach kids. Uh, and they they do three or four lessons outside where teachers can just look and experience and see how the group reacts. Uh, and after that, we do a teacher training. So they they get a training on how to actually do uh, lessons outside because because um, uh, they only learn uh, at, the, at the academy how to teach indoors uh, so we have to show uh, give them some uh, give them some suggestions of how to handle your group or control or not control your group outdoors uh, and after that we well they start the, we ask them after the first training they will just just go outside once teach um, and then after that we'll come back and we'll share the experiences and we'll do that two or three more times and after that, it's up to the teachers themselves to, to really do this project and, and use the forest as an, uh, as an educational place. So I think in every school there, we've got wonderful examples of teachers who actually go there about every day. Um, and in some schools, it's less effective. You know? So I wouldn't say that at, at the 120 schools, it's, it's being used every day. 
but, but yeah, some of the schools they do really well, use really well, and others, well, maybe they go in the summertime. They go three or four times with the class outdoors. So it's it, it's still not very common for schools in the Netherlands to teach outdoors. And even if it's about nature, it's not very common to go outdoors and and teach about nature to to um, and, and about the natural world. So it's it's actually well, it, it's one of our larger programs and uh, outside of tiny forests as well with greening schoolyards, um, with food forests, even with uh, indoor forests. We're trying to show teachers how to use nature in, in, in their classes and not just with nature education, but how do you do ma- math in, uh, in a forest? How do you do language in a forest? So we try to give them a lot of inspiration. We try to give them a place with another classroom uh, where they, uh, that they can use. But we try to take away the hurdles. And sometimes it's very effective. Sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, so yeah, so we're still uh, figuring out the, the best ways to do this. So tell me, do you do you see a difference in the children that attend these or visit these forests or that create these forests? Is there a connection with them and the forest? And do they go back by themselves or maybe with their parents to to these little tiny forests? One of the major things that is that they plant their own forest. So it's it's really a sense of pride because they get their own tree and they get their tree tag, which is this little wooden uh, thing, um, and they, they 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 name their tree and they will follow the growth for a year. But but then usually these uh, these forests are near a school or or in a playground or in a community garden. So so yeah, I'm actually you can't see it, but outside there there's <laughs> there's a tiny forest. Uh, and I think at two uh, in in forty five minutes the schools are out and you'll you'll see uh, children dropping in and just well playing in the forest playing around the forest uh, looking looking maybe for beasts or, or jumping on a trampoline um, and and it's more of a, a background for us. Um, but I think mostly the the thing that makes the most difference is actually planting your own forest, watching it grow, following some lessons, learning about that. And when you plant trees, it attracts bees, it attracts spiders, beetles, worms, just very, very basic stuff. Uh, and there's a sense of pride in it because after, after every planting day, you see all these kids coming with their parents to show this is my tree, this is the one I planted, and this is... <laughs> And there's all these beautiful quotes, you know, I, I just talked to a co-worker of mine, he planted a tiny forest with uh, some kids yesterday, and this was the most beautiful tree they have ever seen because it's their tree and they planted. So I think that's uh, uh, planting a tree, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful experience, and that's just one of the experiences. Um, and during their time at the elementary school, they'll have like two or three weeks where they're the tiny forest ranger. They take turns of who's the, who's the ranger of the forest. And in this week, they just, well, they observe the forest. They pick up some litter. That's, that's usually there because it's in a public domain. Uh, and they show around people and friends. So we're really trying to give them a sense of ownership of the forest. And hopefully they see, well, if we restore a few plant trees and if you plant, plant the right native species, this will attract wildlife. And, and nature can... Uh, can regenerate uh, if we just take care of it. So uh, hopefully they will start to see that uh, even if a place is a desert right now or if it's a parking lot, it can be a forest or it can be a different type of nature as well. 
to me, it's a story about hope that it's not too late. Nature is very resilient if you just give it a chance to bounce back. And I do feel that they experience that by planting their tree, watching it grow, seeing the forest develop. And, and they plant the trees. We, we usually do it with um, the eight and nine-year-olds. And, and when, if you plant the, the forest at eight-year-olds, you're 12 and you go to high school in the Netherlands, the forest will be twice as high as you. So the, the whole experience of, of, of watching that ecosystem grow, I do feel it makes a difference. And especially because they have this sense of ownership of the forest. I think that that's, that's one of the things that we found with working with our children here that when they planted something, there was that sense of pride and ownership. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I remember the one time we were working at the school weeding after it had been planted and there was a, a child came over with her parents. They were, she was showing them the garden and she said to us, can you tell us what you're doing? Because I helped plant this and I don't want anybody to pull anything out <laughs> yeah. that we Beautiful. And I said, no, we're not, we're not pulling anything out. We actually put this project together and uh, we're, we're, um, we're weeding and a lot of people don't like to weed. So, you know, that's happening now. So, so she was okay with that, <laughs> but it was that sense of ownership and that yeah, questioning. She, she's protecting so, her forest. So, well, that, protecting yeah, it. Uh, and I think uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that meeting. It's been canceled because, uh, because of the COVID situation. Uh, but I actually uh, I stayed in touch with uh, one of the rangers who planted our very first tiny forest. So I think in April, I think next month, I'll meet him again. And it'll, it'll be six years ago that we planted it. But we're going to look back on the planting day and see see how it has affected him and how well how he experiences the forest right now. If he sees it and, if he, and, and what does he think about the movement that's going on uh, of these forests. So... Really looking forward to that because he's he's hit puberty now. He's like 16, 17 year old. Uh, so what's his experience looking back uh, on, on when he was like nine years, ten years old? Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. That should show the impact that that the project ha- has. It would be it would be interesting to find out and track the children to find out what professions they go into. <laughs> oh yeah, that would be amazing. You know, we had one young gentleman who was an Eagle Scout who did a project at one of our schools, and uh, he turned out to be a commissioner within the township and was making decisions for the people who lived in that community. And the schools and the school grounds and open space became very important to him as a commissioner within our community. And so you don't really know how you're going to impact the the student down the line and someone like yourself will you know a student could be in one profession and change because of what they've seen or thought they were going to be and now they decide they want to be an environmentalist or they want to be uh someone who's going to be a grower and that was that was going to bring up my next question I know we have a problem here in the United States. I was just reading some information last night. Here in the U.S., we have a 1.7 billion tree shortage. Tree shortage in yeah. our in, in our country. Um, we're growing approximately 1.3 billion trees a year, and we actually need close to three billion in order to regenerate and do. Wow sequestration so where and how are these trees going to be propagated 
where do you get your trees? And I know that one of the missions that you had in talking with you earlier via email, that you are concerned with diversity. How do you get the vast diversity that you get for your tiny forest from the growers? Well, I think um, uh, what we try to do, that's the method we use. It's, it's from a Japanese botanist, uh, Akira Miyawaki. And what he, uh, well, his life work has been to map the potential natural vegetation, which is uh, basically what used to grow, uh, grow here before humans started, uh, started cultivating. Uh, and he's done a lot of research on that. So that, that's what we try to look for. And I think in Holland, we're in a bit of luck because we, uh, we have a state forest company who has mapped all, all the old forest cores in the Netherlands and they actually collect seeds uh, and they actually have a genetic pool of, of our native species, which they grow and you can actually order them and, and plant them. Um, and and ba yeah, basically, we have enough nurseries growing uh, native species. But, well, like you said, tree planting is becoming so popular because I'm working in the UK as well with, uh, with Earthwatch. But they, they actually have to order their trees right now uh, if they want to plant them next year. And they don't even know what the sites are. So it's, <laughs> it's becoming a bit harder to actually mix and match. But it's... Um, uh, there's a lot of talk about the number of trees, but I think we should have a little bit more discussion uh, about what trees to plant in relation to climate change and how do we plant them in the right way? How do we give them the right circumstances in soil and in, in terms of plant community so that they can actually grow old because that's when the benefits for nature and for human beings uh, are optimal. Yeah, so, so I think we're we're a bit in luck with our nursery, with our system of the of the the, the genetic pool. So we can actually order them; they're available to us. So I'm happy with with the infrastructure. We we have native plant nurseries, uh, but it's it's making sure that the right plant gets planted in the right place. As you're talking mm -hmm. about, one of the things that we have here in the city of Philadelphia is a small area that had been um, a a test area for researcher that what he did was he they they cleared out all the invasive species that were there that were just strangling the yeah. natives and they left the canopy the native canopy that's there and then they brought in southern species to experiment with underneath that canopy and seeing what is surviving and what's not surviving either from cold or maybe too dry or whatever the circumstance. And you can actually see that maybe half of what they planted is doing really well and that they would have never thought to plant it here because it was a more Southern species. It's not native to this region. So they're moving that particular plant up further North yeah, yeah. because our climate has changed. So that has been given a lot of thought. And what we're concerned with is that things are, are, are growing zones have actually, we've actually gone up two growing zones in the last 30 some years. Yeah. So we went from five to a seven. And now, you know, what's it going to be like in 50 years? Is it going to be an eight or a nine? Uh, we're going to be in a tropical <laughs> environment by then. We just don't know, but um, I, I was talking to this native, uh, our main native tree expert in the Netherlands, um, 
because I was having the, in the same debate with him. Should we take species from the southern European countries and should we plant them here in, well, to, to prepare for climate change? Um, he basically started laughing a bit and he said, well, well, Dan, all our species are from the south because 13,000 years ago, uh, this was a polar climate where we had an ice age. And when the ice retreated, the trees that are here right now, they migrated from the Mediterranean. So they're all from the south. So in their DNA, they, they carry the ability to handle droughts, the, the ability to handle more extreme heat. So he talked more about, well, we should allow trees to migrate at their own pace. And you can do that by, uh, we actually have this um, really large scale project in the Netherlands, which is called the ecological main structure, uh, where we try to connect all the nature reserves to one another so species can migrate. So he was talking about maybe we should try to accommodate the, the natural migration of trees, which is hard to do in cities because, well, you <laughs> here you have a building and there um, but I think it's good to experiment with it. But um, in Europe, sure, these are just the, the migratory routes of, uh, of our oaks um, after the last ice age. So here you can see the, this is Netherlands. That's where we're at. Uh, and the oaks came. Well, this is Spain, Portugal. And they basically migrated. Um, and it used to be a land bridge here. Uh, not anymore. Um, so this is how the species, and the, this is just the oaks, how they migrated from the warm south uh, to, to the northern hemisphere when the, when the ice retreated. And I think a tree can migrate, um, I read this in the, in the book, that they can migrate at a pace of three to 400 meters a year. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough call to make right now. Uh, there's a lot of debate on that, uh, which trees to plant in uh, relation to, uh, to climate change. And uh, the people we work with, uh, like Miyawaki and Sharma and, and our uh, own native tree um, experts, well, he actually thinks that the, these are very climate resilient trees because they, they used to come from the more southern hemisphere. So I was, I was just wondering if you had, uh, you had information like this on the U.S. It would be interesting. Well, we do have, I will say, um, and it, a lot of it has to do with bird migration. Of course, um, yeah. We'll, yeah. Find after a hurricane, for example, um, people will say, well, I wonder how this tree got here. Um, well, you know, when the birds have been shifted uh, from a storm inland, they will carry the seed that would be typically just coastal and it will carry it more inland. And you'll find that happening. And that happened, you know, ha can happen over a decade or it can happen over a hundred years that these seeds are being carried up and down the, the eastern seaboard where we'll see plants that will come into an area that would typically not be there. Yeah. Um, junipers, for example, our junipers get carried that way. Um, our hollies get carried that way. Um, uh, our um, service berry, which is the amelanchier, that'll get carried that way as well. There's a whole host of them that way. And and it's it's that I think bird migration can tell you a lot about what's going to happen in the future when we look at the migratory trails. And I do believe you are on a migratory trail because you're right along the oh, yeah, there. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So you can uh, keep track of what the bird. Now, if the birds don't have any food to eat along the way, then 
what are they going to be carrying? They're not going to be carrying much of anything. And of course, they can actually starve from not eating. Having that fat and that protein uh, they get from different types of berries and, and, uh, and seed. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you actually have to, we, we don't have the hurricanes yet. <laughs> no, but our hurricanes can really, they, they uh, in fact, in some of the southern states, the plant people are alarmed at some of the, the numbers of plants that used to be there that are not no longer there. Oh, wow, yeah. Or the plants that may go extinct if we don't uh, collect and do a plant exploration and propagate them, especially like in the panhandle of Florida, in, uh, in Louisiana and Alabama, when the storms come up through that way, if there's a, a particular plant that may only be found in that area, uh, the likelihood of it going extinct is much higher because uh, of those storms, maybe inundation from salt, maybe the plant is not as tolerant to salt. Yeah, of course. Uh, further inland. So those are the kind of things that you really need to think about. And looking at the resilience of a, of a tree or plant is, is a huge undertaking. And of course, because we're working with woody plants, uh, the life expectancy is so much longer than our perennials and our annuals, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But that we need to see something over a longer period of time and having records like you're tracking, you're, you're documenting what you're doing is, is critical for the next generation so that they have some kind of roadmap to go with, go on, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. That roadmap. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I really admire about the Miyawaki is actually been all over the world just making these maps of the the potential natural vegetation he actually used to work with uh uh elgene box of the university of georgia they actually read a wrote a book together about uh, healing the healing the planet with uh, native species so uh, we we actually had him visit elgene box from georgia to uh, to check out our project so uh, <laughs> we were very happy about it so I think you've got a few people uh, who actually are doing that in uh, in the U.S. That's wonderful. That's really wonderful. What do you see or envision for this project in the future, in ten years, in twenty years? What what would you hope to have happened, and what would you like to see happen with all your efforts that you and your staff and your volunteers and your and your the students? You know, how, how do you see this in the future? Uh, well, I think for me, it's always been about uh, the connection between kids and nature. And so I'd say if I meet somebody in 20 years who says, well, I used to be a tiny forest ranger and right now I'm in forestry or I'm an environmentalist, that, that, that would be for me a massive success. Uh, so that, that's what the project is about for me. But then we, we have people in our team who are really about afforestation, you know, so, so they're, they're really interested in, well, we plant the trees close together. What is it going to look like in, in 10 or 20 years? How's the biodiversity going to develop? And then I have another uh, colleague of mine. He's really interested in the community aspect of the forest. Uh, so, so he'll have those community goals. So I think in terms of well, success, it's, it's, for me, it's all about reconnecting local communities to the forest and especially kids. And I hope, well, what, what I really want to do is to, to empower people to, to create it 
themselves. So we're working on online courses, manuals, and I'm hoping to improve these with uh, with tutorial videos. Uh, Shubendo and I are are fantasizing about uh, <laughs> about platforms uh, because I, I want I want to be able to show people how you can create your your own natural forest in your backyard or, or in your community uh, with hopefully lesser cost than we need right now. So that that's that's what I'm hope to work towards, you know, to, to empower a lot of people to get into trees, to learn more about soil, to learn more about the native species, to well, to observe uh, nature and see see what changes are coming with uh, climate change. So that's what I really want to do. And another project I've been working on right now is to um, to see if we can uh, plant forests on company grounds and see if we can get the workforce in the Netherlands to, to go outdoors more and to connect with uh, nature and to, to use it really because there's a lot of studies showing what nature does for stress levels, for vitality, for lower heart rate, for creativity. So we used to be a species that lived outside and now we're, we're an indoor species. So I hope to reverse that. <laughs> How about with your own children? Are they actively involved in Oh, in I brought them, but uh, Tiny, so he's now one year old, so he's just walking. So I could take him to a planting. I'm not allowed right now because of the COVID situation, but uh, Mace, uh, I think he took him with me like three or four times and he wants to bring his own shovel and <laughs> and he's planted trees. And well, we have a big garden, so I've planted a lot of a lot of trees and shrubs with, with them. Uh, and we actually made a small pond and, um, and they just like to, well, look at that. So uh, yeah, we live in the midst of a forest. So we go there all the time. So I, I, I moved out of the city. Uh, we, we used to live in Amsterdam until Kiki uh, got pregnant. That's when we wanted to move to uh, to a village where where there's more nature around because yeah, I really enjoyed being in in nature, playing in the woodlands, um, uh, and that's what I want for my kids. So that's why I moved out of the city. But but I know we have the means to do that, you know. And there's a lot of kids um, and a lot of people who don't have the resources to move from from that apartment building to to a nice village where we live. And I think uh, Mace is now really interested in herbs, so he wants to start planting his uh, own herb garden. So I'll we'll start doing that now from uh, from April onwards. So hopefully, I can pass my love of nature to them, and uh, and they can inspire others again. <laughs> I think I think that the best way to show your children or lead your children is by practice, and having them watch you is probably the best thing that you could possibly do you know, being out there in nature and, and showing them and having their own shovel. That's, that's important. Right. You know, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a great thing. You talked about the uh, diversity and how they're selecting trees. And uh, when I think of the Netherlands, I think of the Netherlands as this amazing place for growing and growers, <laughs> uh, growers that are well recognized globally for their incredible talent with greenhouses and growing operations. And that's what I think of. And when you were saying that most children never get out into nature, I was shocked. I really was shocked. Do you, is it the same in the UK when you're working uh, there? Well, yeah, I think, uh, I think basically in every major city, the, um, I think ever since 2016, that's when we uh, hit the mark where more than half of the people 
of the world's population now lives in cities and the, U, the UN is expecting this percentage to rise to 70%. So we, we've basically, as humanity, moved to the city from a, from a rural. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a big problem. But, but I, I even hear it from farmers, you know, because who actually live in rural places that kids spend more time indoors and it's, it's because of TV and, and computers and, and smartphones. Um, so they don't, well, we spend less and less time outdoors. So I think that's, that's, that's going on. Um, uh, and I, I see that in the UK and, and people I talk to in Germany and, and in France and England and all the other countries. It's the same. Well, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a bigger trend that we spend more time indoors, that we're in the urbanization, and those are trends that, that will keep staying. But they're, they're inviting these new trends of, of urban green greenery. There's not a muni- Every city in the Netherlands is now talking about we need to plant more trees, we need to have more green spaces. And especially, uh, I think the lockdown, uh, because our, uh, everything is locked down right now because of COVID, and the only thing there is to do is to go to parks, and they've been swamped with people. So I think we're really starting to see the need to to make cities a more natural habitat again. So uh, so I think a, a lot of work will go into there in the, the next few decades to to make our city more well, natural habit and natural places, actually places that are suitable for human beings, because right now our our cities are designed for cars, you know, not for human beings. So how can we make those places um, nice again? Uh, and for agriculture, yeah, I think we're very well known, but we're in the midst of a big crisis because we emit too much nitrogen um, and that's because we have too much livestock. So we sell dairy to the entire world. You know, we're just one of the smallest countries of the world and we're, we're the largest exporter of dairy products in the world. That's why we have too much cow dung, too much nitrogen in our floor and uh, in, in our soil and it's really polluting our country right now. So I think we're well known for, for growing it, but yeah, we're, we're hitting our ecological limits in terms of growth. Um, and we've been very innovative, but uh, the Netherlands should not be the, the one who uh, provides the most milk for China, you know, <laughs> they, should, yeah, they can do that themselves. So, well, a lot of farmers disagree with me, so it's it's a it's a big debate in in the Netherlands. I, I noticed that you have some really wonderful videos on your site. Thank you. And the one video which I thought was ve- very fascinating was how you bring in this organic material and mix it into the topsoil to create a an ideal planting medium for your trees, and. I think that's a really good way to utilize your fertilizer (laughs) you have there and to actually help sequester some of that nitrogen, which um, can cause all kinds of other problems uh, from an environmental standpoint. And and I think that if anybody's listening, you want to go to the site, would you give our listeners that this site? That they can go to for your organization? Yeah, I think if you just go to to our website and I've I've created an English uh, in in the top of your screen, you'll see in English, you can click that and I've got about six or seven pages uh, with resources, just short video clips about the project. uh, for ecosystem restoration camps, I've created an online course how to convert a parking lot into a tiny forest. So you can follow that for free on our website as well. So uh, 
Yeah, please, please use those resources because they're there for a reason. I think it was excellent. You have an excellent website. And Thanks. I was really happy to see that you have uh, both languages and uh, it's easy for Americans to take a look at that and to learn from your project and, and your models that you're creating. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we've already, you've already created yeah, the wheel. Well, uh, I learned from somebody in India, so um, I'm hoping that, that other people uh, can learn from me and, and share their experiences. So uh, that way we become a learning community and then uh, share experiences. Well, we're delighted that you could be on our show. My colleague couldn't be here today. He's out in the field uh, getting, getting a tree crews set up. So um, I, I had to pick up the mantle for him as well. So uh, we, we are really delighted that you could be here with us. And we wish you all the, the great success moving forward and uh, creating uh, a better place to live, but also creating another generation or several generations of people who are going to learn to love Woodlands. Uh, yeah, uh, I hope so too. And uh, I, I hope somebody in the U.S. is listening and uh, will join our calls and, uh, and start planting these forests in, in cities as well. So if you want to get started, uh, contact me. I'll, I'll be glad to help. Thank you so much, Dan. We really appreciate it. And have a wonderful day. Yes, uh, you too. Thank you for taking the time on your free day to, uh, to talk to me. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.